Good morning, City Church. Uh, my name is David Richter, and I'm the pastor here uh, at uh, City Church of East Nashville, and it is so good to be with you here today as we gather together to worship the Lord. Uh, it is especially sweet for me. Uh, just a little bit of an update, what's going on in my life. Most of you guys know, some of you guys may not. Uh, we, uh, my wife was, uh, was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer this past summer, and we've had kind of several weeks of kind of getting different information, and we just found out uh, within the last week, she's going to be starting chemo uh, next week. Um, and uh, it has been a crazy time for us. And uh, it is kind of hard to wrap your mind around in many different ways. And one of the beautiful things uh, about being a Christian in this world is that we have a hope that surpasses understanding of these things. Uh, we are thankful uh, for the doctors that we have, but we are also incredibly thankful for the fact that the Lord doesn't just save us individually, he saves us in the community. And I want to just thank you all for all of the incredible care and love that you've given us. Uh, we have a ton of food in our house. It's just been really wonderful, and that's been really great. Uh, we actually had uh, somebody bring us a freezer this past week so that we could keep some of the food. So we're thankful for that as well. Um, you guys are, are amazing, and we love you, and we're so thankful for you. Um, and uh, we would appreciate your prayers um, uh, as we kind of go through the season as well. Uh, but one of the beautiful things as well of being a Christian is that we not only can gather together to worship the Lord, but he gives us his word and allows us to be able to open it and to study it and to learn from him um, and to actually be reoriented to the reality of who we are in this world, what we're called to be, what our meaning is, what our purpose is. How glorious is that in the midst of the world that we're living in right now, where there's so much confusion, so much lack of hope, so much uh, just kind of despair over who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do, what can give us any kind of meaning in this world. Uh, the Lord actually meets us in that, in his word, uh, and actually reorients our hearts toward him and gives us the hope that we can have in this world. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're continuing in a series that we started back in August and through the book of Acts. And in this, we have been talking a lot about uh, the idea of who we are as a church. Why are we here as God's people? What has he uh, brought us together to be and to do? And this is an important time for that as I'm just starting a new job here as the pastor of the church, but also coming out of COVID and just a lot of the confusion of our culture. Uh, every church, I would argue right now, is a church plant in this culture, and we are all kind of figuring out what it means to be the people of God again after COVID and in our culture again. So this is good for us to think about these things and to study a book that actually gives us an orientation for that. Uh, and today we're continuing that in, in chapter 9, but before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us and bless us. Uh, Father, uh, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to be with you, uh, to open your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing to you today, O oh Lord, uh, my God and my Redeemer. And I pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in and amongst us this day. Uh, you promise us in your word that as we gather together that your Spirit would be among us. And we pray that he would, uh, opening our hearts and our minds, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, transforming us our, our hearts by his grace. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so uh, just to give you a little bit of context, uh, last time we were together, in fact, uh, I haven't preached in two weeks, uh, but last time we were in the book of Acts, we were talking about uh, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, which is one of the great stories in all of Scripture. Uh, this man who had been the great persecutor of God's people, he was hunting them down, he was killing them, he was putting them in prison, uh, had this miraculous event where Jesus himself met him on the road. 
uh, and then converted him. Uh, and then immediately after that story, in the book of Acts, we see uh, kind of a major shift that happens uh, here in, at the end of verse 9. And uh, after this conversion, uh, the persecution that had broken out with Paul uh, around the stoning of Stephen uh, that we saw back a couple chapters back uh, kind of uh, uh, faded away a little bit. They actually had a kind of a respite in the midst of this time of persecution. And so what we see here is, and what we're told here is the apostle Peter began to go out into all of Israel and to encourage uh, the new converts and the people of God, the people who have become Christians, uh, the saints uh, of God's people. And uh, we, we know from church history that there were a lot of interactions that Peter had during this time. One of the fascinating things about seminary for me is that you may not know this, but there, we, we have our gospel books and we have reasons for why we chose the books of the Bible to be in the book of the Bible or that God chose them to be that way. Uh, but there are also a number of other books that are really great books that were written during that time. One of them is called The Shepherd of Hermes. Um, and a lot of these books give us stories of how you know a gathering of God's people in a basement were together, and all of a sudden Peter would show up and he would preach uh, because he was traveling around Israel at that time. And it's really cool to see and to hear these stories about uh, how the apostles were going out and what they were doing during that time and hear a little bit more of the history of what was happening during this time. So there were lots of interactions that were going on. But Luke chooses to focus in on two particular events that happen here. And these two events have to do with these kind of miraculous things that happen. Uh, healings and, uh, in one situation and in another situation bringing somebody back to life. And uh, this is uh, an incredible event. Uh, one of the things that C.S. Lewis liked to really talk about is that we have a lot of what he called chronological snobbery in our world today of modern people. And what he meant by that is that we tend to think that we're different than people in the past and that somehow uh, somebody being raised from the dead or being healed was not that big of a deal for them. Uh, it was, just as much as it was for us today. If you saw something like this happen, it would have been a shocking event. It would have been a very big deal. And what we are told here in this passage is that two shocking events happened. And you have to ask the question, okay, why are these events being focused on at this time uh, in the progression of the, the advancement of the gospel into the surrounding areas around Jerusalem at this time? And the first thing that I want us to notice here in the passage as we begin to unpack it is that Luke highlights these passages here uh, in a way that show us that they are absolutely almost near exact parallels to the events uh, to two events that actually happened in Jesus' ministry when he was on the earth. The first event uh, that we see here, the healing of Ananias uh, the paralytic in verse 34, closely parallels Jesus' healing of a paralytic man in Capernaum in Mark 2 and Matthew 9. Uh, there Jesus says, get up, take your mat. Uh, and Peter says here, get up, tidy up your mat. And in the Greek, it actually is strikingly parallel in the way that it talks about uh, these sentences and how they're talking about it, what happened in there. They just seem very, very similar. Uh, moreover, in the second event that we see here, uh, which is the raising of uh, Tabitha back to life, or Dorcas, uh, it even more closely parallels an event that Jesus' life when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5. Uh, the language that is used here, the way that uh, the interaction happened with the people in the town, uh, all strikingly similar to exactly what happened uh, when Jesus uh, raised uh, this other person as well. Uh, even when they say, get up, uh, the same language is used in the Greek. Uh, in the very same way. And also in the situation when he's talking to the people in the upper room, uh, very similar, very parallel to exactly what happened with Jesus. And what we need to understand here is that these parallels are too similar, they're too close to each other to be accidents. They're very purposeful. 
Luke chose to highlight these because they directly tie Peter to Jesus and his ministry in this world. Peter isn't just do, going around doing his own thing. He isn't, you know, kind of a rogue guy who's just kind of uh, out kind of proclaiming his own gospel. Uh, his actions parallel Jesus' actions. His ministry parallels Jesus' ministry. His message parallels Jesus' message. Everything about Peter and his life are both following, uh, paralleling, and pointing to Jesus Christ and what he has come into this world to do. And that's a lot of what we've talked about in the book of Acts, right? Acts is not uh, the, uh, the works or the acts of God's people in this world per se. It really is the acts of Jesus Christ as he works through his people to actually spread his gospel and his kingdom around the world. And so that's exactly what we see here with Peter as well in this these parallel miracles play a powerful role in actually the authentication of who Peter was and his message in this world. And again, uh, he's not doing some kind of random thing. Uh, he is pr not promoting himself. He is pointing to Jesus Christ. He is promoting the message of the gospel. He's a man who has been empowered by God himself to proclaim Jesus and his gospel in the world. And this is an important concept um, for us to kind of wrap our heads around. These miracles were authenticating events. And oftentimes you see this in Jesus' life as well. Uh, Jesus didn't go around just kind of doing magic tricks so that people would be amazed and kind of ooh and awe over things. He did really amazing things, shocking things. But every one of those miracles was incredibly intentional and incredibly purposeful. And a lot of what they were doing there, a lot of what Jesus was doing, but also what Luke is doing and God doing through Luke here, is authenticating their message, authenticating who they are. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul points out uh, uh, to a miracle that he has done uh, that the things that mark an apostle um, are actually authenticated by these miracles. Uh, and as Paul is saying that the miracles actually proved who he was and that his message was actually true. Uh, and that it was divine revelation instead of just him, uh, a regular man, just kind of saying whatever he wanted to say in a particular situation. And the same is true in our passage today. Luke here is showing us these two parallel miracles because they authenticate that God was with Peter, that he was behind him, that he was empowering him for his service. And this is true, and we must take Peter's message seriously because it's ultimately God's message and not just the message of man. Um, and that's really important for us to wrap our heads around. Uh, but we can't stop there. As, uh, as important as the idea of authentication is in the scriptures, and all of the scriptures are eyewitness accounts, uh, they, they work hard to authenticate the reality of the message that's being prepared and being presented. But that's not the only thing that's going on. Uh, it's also important to understand that these miracles also highlight the scope of Jesus' ongoing ministry through both Peter here, but also us as God's people in the world. According to the Bible, in the beginning of time, God actually created the world perfectly. He created us to be in the world. He created us to be in perfect relationship with him and one another. There was perfect unity. There was perfect harmony in the world. Um, uh, there was no strife or sickness or, or brokenness or racism or, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, of sin and ugliness in the world at that time. Everything was perfect. But instead of remaining in that perfection, we were told that we actually chose to rebel against God. We wanted uh, to take things into our own hands, to be the gods of our own lives. And so we rebelled against him. And in doing so, we actually broke the world and we broke ourselves. We broke our relationship with God and we broke our relationship with one another. And every uh, awful thing that you can imagine in this world, all the way from pandemics uh, to murders to rape 
to genocide, to racism, to everything that you could ever imagine, the fight that you had with your wife or your husband on the way over here, all of that is rooted in our rebellion against God and our sin in this world. And what we need to understand is that when Jesus came to earth and he began to heal the diseases of this world in these miraculous acts and raise the dead and forgive the desperate, when he began to place... uh, things in this world uh, back into their right order. That's exactly what he was doing, not just authenticating himself. He was ushering in a great reversal of the devastating effects of man's fall and brokenness in this world. In this, Jesus's miracles were not a suspension of the natural order, as oftentimes we think about miracles, right? We think of God kind of intervening and suspending the natural order of things. That's not what miracles are in the scripture. They are actually a restoration of the natural order. When Jesus heals, he's putting things right. When he brings life out of death, he is showing what life is supposed to be in the beginning. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Brokenness is not the way it's supposed to be. And this, we are told, is a reminder of what what was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be the universal reality once again when he returns at the end of time. A world of peace and justice, of hope, of meaning, of perfect unity both with one another, with our world, and with God. Free of disease, free of conflict, free of all brokenness and sin. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you've uh, read the books. I would highly recommend the books over the movies, uh, but uh, that's my own snobbery. Um, but in that, in The Lion, the Witch, and the World of, there's an incredible scene where it talks about the idea that these children uh, find their way into this wonderful land called Narnia. I know that I'm explaining something that the vast majority of you already know, but uh, they find their way through a wardrobe into this incredible world, and that world is frozen solid. And what we're told over and over again is that it's always winter and it's never Christmas. It's kind of the greatest nightmare for children, right? You know, you always have winter, but there's no Christmas coming, right? And that's kind of the picture that we're given there. But when Aslan, we are told, comes, this great king from across the sea, and he enters into Narnia, winter begins stirring backwards. The coldness, the darkness begins to recede, and life begins to return to that land. You need to know that when Jesus came into this world, that's exactly what happened. Winter began to stir backwards. The effects of the curse and our brokenness and our sin began to roll back. Light came into our darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, we're told. Everything began to reverse. And we're told as well that when he returns, everything that that was broken once will be made new and be restored to its right order the way that it was supposed to be. And in this in-between time, God calls his people to follow Jesus' mission and his ushering and his great project of restoration in this world. And this is what Peter is doing in our passage, and it's what God calls all of us to do as well. Um, I don't remember when I've used different illustrations for different things, but one of my favorite uh, games 
Uh, and when I was a kid was The Legend of Zelda. Some of you may remember this. I'm probably dating myself for most of you guys. Uh, but the original Le Legend of Zelda on the Nintendo that I got the first year that it came out, super excited about that. And what happened in that is that you were this kind of figure named Link. And Link started off the game in this little circle of light. And everywhere he went, he took light with him. And it pushed back the darkness. And the more he went, the more you could see, the more life came into the world. And all of my life, I've thought about that. And it's given me this kind of picture of the reality of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. We are being called to put, push back the darkness, to bring light into this world, to be a part of the project of reversing the fall in this world and actually seeing winter begin to recede. And that's a beautiful thing. Every time you share the gospel with someone, every time you're kind to someone who doesn't deserve it, every time you have a good conversation with someone, every time you bind up somebody's wound, every time you repair a broken fence or uh, restore something that has been damaged in this world, you are pushing back the darkness and you are bringing a little glimpse of what true humanity, what true life, what the world was actually supposed to be like. That is a great mission. And it's something that's really worthy of us in how we live our lives. And it's beautiful. However, it begs a question, right? In light of this passage that we're studying this morning, if this really is what we're doing, then why don't we see the miracles that we see in this passage happening in our everyday lives? Um, God called his people. He calls uh, us just like he called Luke in this passage that is proclaimed all throughout the New Testament. Uh, so why aren't we doing these kind of miracles that Luke is doing in this passage? And the answer to that is, is that we are and we aren't. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? We are and we aren't. Um, well, the first thing you need to know is that uh, God is God, and he can do whatever he wants and in whatever time he wants. Uh, he can do miracles at any time, in any place, in any season in the life of God's people. Um, and uh, if you have heard any stories, and I've heard many stories of missionaries in different parts of the world uh, that have incredibly credible accounts of miracles that have happened. Uh, I've heard stories from Presbyterian missionaries. We are not prone in Presbyterian circles to craziness around uh, mystical and miraculous and majestic things, right? Uh, we, like our, we like our books, we like our knowledge, uh, we like to stay straight down the middle of the road. But I can tell you that I've heard from many Presbyterian missionaries stories about bottles of medicine that never run out, stories about uh, uh, incredible events in which they were protected in situations. There was a story that my dad told about a friend of his uh, who went to a particular country in South America, and the local villagers were very hostile to Christianity and to their being there. And there's a story of after they were there for several months, they had a little hut on top of a hill, and the villagers came with pitchforks and with torches to kill them. And they told them that they were going to kill them. But when they got about 50 yards away, the entire village stopped, and they said a lot of horrible things, but they didn't come any closer. And they went back, and it was shocking to them. But the missionaries didn't leave. They stayed. They engaged in the work that was there. And the Lord blessed their work. And over time, many people came to know the Lord. And one of the missionaries, my dad's friends, actually asked a question at one point to one of these people, uh, the, one of the villagers that actually was in the crowd coming to kill them, why did not you come and kill us that day? 
And his answer was, it was because of all of the men standing around with machine guns. There were no men standing around with machine guns. But every one of those villagers saw it. I can't describe that. I can't explain it. But I tell you that the Lord was at work. And those are miraculous things that happen. Things like that do happen in our world. But they don't happen all the time. And one of the interesting things about how the Lord works is oftentimes these miraculous events often occur in cultures where the gospel is advancing for the first time. Um, you hear about these things in places where Christianity does not have a foothold at all. But oftentimes, in cultures that are, have been Christianized, you don't hear as much about these kind of things. My own personal opinion, which is not biblical, careful in saying that, is that the devil is not stupid. And God is not stupid either. And oftentimes, if you, in a culture like ours, which has historically been very scientific, if you do those kind of things, it's kind of, it proves spirituality, right? And so why would the devil prove to everybody that there are spiritual things that exist? So oftentimes, I don't think you see these kind of things at work. Yet we see them happening here. In a culture like ours, it is seemingly very rare that God would move in this way. I've never seen miracles like this. I would guess that many of you have not. God doesn't promise us that we would see these kind of things. Yet even though it's true that the types of big-ticket miracles that we see in our passage today seem very rare in our culture, it is not, a mistake to think that God is not actively and miraculously at work in the lives of our culture, our people, and even in our church today. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want you to notice here. Who are the people that Peter is engaging with in these miracles, in this passage. It's an invalid and it's a widow. Now that may just kind of fly right over your head, but I guarantee you that it wouldn't have flown over the heads of the people in the first century who were reading this passage. We need to understand in the ancient world, these two people were absolute social outcasts. They were at the very bottom of the cultural pecking order in that world. If you were an invalid, you had no real... Uh, benefit the culture. If you were a widow, you were seen in that same way, unless you were to remarry. They were very bottom level, bottom of the barrel. And so the question is, why in the world would Peter even bother helping people like this? Now, that may seem like a strange question to you in our culture. It may even feel like a, an offensive question to you. But what I want to argue this morning is that the reason that it feels strange or feels offensive is actually because of a miraculous thing that happened when Jesus came into this world. And I want us to think about that. I read this uh, 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 kind of series of lectures that, uh, several years ago in which this history professor was kind of outlining this thought experience uh, that he used to go through as he taught his freshman students as they would come, first come to his class, as he was trying to help them understand the context for Western culture as we engage with it. And in this, uh, as his students would come into class, he, he asked them to engage in this thought experiment, um, which he asked them to imagine that you are out and about one night, and you see this old woman crossing a poorly lit street at night, carrying a big bag that you know is filled to the brim with money and jewels. Money and jewels. And for the sake of the thought experiment, experiment he asked them to imagine three things. First of all, the woman could not resist you. Secondly, that she would not be able to identify you. And thirdly, for the sake of the experiment, 
that it would not be illegal for you to actually steal this from the woman. And the professor went on to ask, would you do it? Would you take the bag? And maybe not surprisingly to us, almost 100% of the people in his class said no, they wouldn't do it. And then he went on immediately to say why. And he gave them three different categories to kind of think through this. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you steal this thing from this woman? If nobody would ever find out, if you'd never get caught, if it wasn't illegal, why wouldn't you do it? And what he said was this, A, because doing so would make you a weak person, a dishonorable, a dishonorable person, or a shameful person. And therefore, if you felt this way about yourself, that you wouldn't do that because you don't want to be a shameful person or a dishonorable person, so you wouldn't do it. B, you wouldn't do it because you would think about her, her feelings, how it would cause her pain to be able to do this, the loss of, of being able to provide for herself, the loss of income, uh, these are the things that belong to her, and by doing this, you are damaging this person, you are hurting this person, and therefore, out of sympathy for her and out of care for her, you wouldn't actually engage in this. And then third, he actually gave him an open-ended response. He said, uh, uh, C, you can, you can just fill in the blank with something else. Give me another example of why you wouldn't do this. And what he says is almost 100% of his students, again, answered B, that they would not do it because of the way that it would hurt this person, make her feel, make her lose out on things that she needs to actually survive in this world. And at this point, the professor says he began to teach the class. And what he said is this, A is a fundamentally self-regarding ethic. It comes from a shame and honor culture, which was every, almost every culture on the face of the earth before Christianity came, was a shame and honor culture. And it's rooted in this. And this, strength and honor are what really matter in this world. And ultimate value is bringing honor to yourself and your family and your clan and your people so you would always avoid bringing shame on them or shame on yourself. And that's where that's rooted. B is a fundamentally other regarding ethic. The good of the other is what really matters. And ultimately, love is the greatest value the love for the other person, the care for the other person in this world, the regard for the other person and their needs in this world. And the professor said this, I don't care, and he wasn't a Christian, by the way, I don't care if you believe in God or not, if you're a Christian or not. What you need to understand is that if you answered B, then you have been deeply and fundamentally shaped by the message and ministry of Jesus Christ. The very concept of other-centered ethic that says it doesn't matter what social class you are, it doesn't matter what gender you are, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what economic bracket that you are in. Everyone must be loved for their own sake is rooted in Christianity. In fact, it did not exist in this world until Christianity came along. And examples of this... Um, I watched another series of lectures uh, by uh, a guy named Tim Keller. He was doing a series of lectures in London at this prayer breakfast, and he unpacked a number of different things that kind of show us how this impacts our lives on a regular basis and how we think about this. The first person he referenced was a man named David Bentley Hart, who's a scholar, uh, I think, at Cambridge. Um, and he said uh, that the very basis of our modern idea of universal benevolence, helping the poor and needy no matter who you are or where you come from, is a fundamentally Christian ethical idea. 
It was common practice in the ancient world to cast the sick and lame out into the streets to fend for themselves. But Christianity was the first religion and worldview to begin taking care of the poor and needy in their society. Christians remained during the great plagues of Rome to care for the sick, even when it cost them their own lives. They collected money to help other culture, cultural or racial groups during famine. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're actually going to probably, this will be a little bit later than that, but in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, uh, you get a collection that's made by the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, by, uh, yes, the Apostle Paul, uh, to send back to Jerusalem um, for a relief effort after a, a kind of a crisis that happened. And many scholars point out the fact that this is the very first multi-ethnic cross-cultural relief effort in the history of the world. Nowhere in history have we ever seen this before. That people would care about people outside of their own clan, tribe, uh, city group, people group, racial group in this way to be able to collect money like this and send to them. It's amazing. In this, we get uh, comments in the Roman Empire, like the famous comment by the Roman official juvenile that said that he could not stop the spread of Christianity in the early uh, first century because they were taking care of the Roman sick and the Romans broken uh, in just as much as they were caring for their own, and therefore got the gospel spread like wildfire during that time. And this also plays its way out in other ways. If you think about human rights, Brian Tierney at Cornell University says that has shown through extensive research that the very concept of human rights, that every human being has equal dignity and worth in this world, actually comes from the ethic of Christianity and the Imago Dei. You talk about slavery. The very first recorded person in the history of the world to argue against slavery was Gregory, the bishop of Nicaea, in about 320. And he did so on the basis of Jesus and the Imago Dei and that Christians were the ones who actually ended the slave trade in both Europe and in the United States. If you've never read the story of Will, William Wilberforce, you should. It's amazing. If you think about civil rights, Martin Luther King rooted all bases for civil rights in the Judeo-Christian ethic of the Imago Dei and the other focus, self-giving love of Jesus Christ. If you think about women's rights, Sarah Williams, the professor of women's studies, um, said that before Christianity, women in the ancient world were seen as only property for their husbands in almost every culture in the history of the world. They had no rights, no freedoms. And the Greco-Roman society saw no value in unmarried women as well, like the widow that we see in our passage today. And therefore, it was illegal for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. But Christianity was the first religion to not force widows to remarry. They were supported by the community financially and honored within, within the community as well, so that they were not under great pressure to remarry and to be forced into these kind of situations. Sarah Williams goes on to say that nothing in the history of the world has been more freeing and foundational for women's rights than Christianity in the first century, and went on to show that the first great women's rights suffrage movement was born out of Christianity itself. It's amazing. It's not what you hear in our culture oftentimes, but it's true. Finally, if you think about sexual ethics, Kyle Harper at NYU, he was a scholar of antiquity, says this, before Jesus came, the world's sexual ethic was completely based on shame and honor and on social order. And as a result, married men of high social status could have sex with any woman that they wanted, but women could not. No woman of a lower social status could ever deny a man of higher social status uh, sex. But along came Jesus, and he said that all sex had to be consensual 
and covenantal. And it was the most radical thing that the world had ever heard. And it created the first sexual revolution in the history of our world. And incredible protections for both women and families and those around. And what we need to understand is that our world has been profoundly influenced and shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in this world and his subsequent ministry of his followers as they've gone forth and spread the good news of his gospel. Much, if not most, of the, the deepest and most closely held values that we have in our society today, in our culture today, are rooted and derived from Christianity itself. But the problem is this, is the philosopher Charles Taylor has pointed out, we have lost our story. We've forgotten both who we are and where our values come from. And we've increasingly forgotten God's truth. And this has created a profound inconsistency in the fabric of how we live out our lives. And I don't have to do a whole lot of argument for this. You can just look out at the world. Anytime you turn on the TV or watch a movie, you know how broken we are in this way, how uh, disoriented we are in this way. And how it plays out oftentimes is on the one hand, we have the highest values and ideals in the history of the world. That's actually true. Um, we believe that every single individual, no matter who you are, where you come from, as I said before, economic status, gender, status, race, whatever it is, everyone deserves dignity and has rights. We believe that fundamentally. We, we talk about it all the time. Everyone deserves the highest level of dignity possible. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? But on the other hand, we are constantly taught that all moral values are socially constructed and a product of evolutionary theory and are therefore rooted in subjective preferences in our lives, our own desires, how we live our lives, what we choose to be and do. And as a result, we talk all the time about the need for high moral standards for how we are to care for one another and how we are to stand up for human rights and be champions for that, but we no longer have any shared basis or story for how we can hold these things. Nor do we have any shared foundation for how we can actually teach them and mold people in our culture to these things. We constantly tell each other and our children that the best way to live our lives is for us to follow our passions and follow our desires, follow our hearts. And we don't let anyone uh, get in our way of following our passion in this world or fulfilling our dreams. And on the other hand, we constantly tell each other that we have to be, uh, we have to be warriors for justice and, and, and social uh, standards and human rights in this world. And this has created a deep cultural schizophrenia. Because being a person of high moral values requires me to be more outward focused than inward focused. I'm gonna say that again. Being a person of high moral values requires me to be a person, more of a person of outward focus than inward focus. It requires me to be willing to sacrifice my own desires and privileges and passions in this world for the good of someone else. It requires me to love others above myself and why in the world would I ever do that? Why? Why would I do that? Why would I give up my own comfort? Why would I give up my own possessions? Why would I give up uh, the chance to just to be wealthy and, and do whatever I want in this world? Why would I give those things up so that I could care for you? Why? Where does the power come from to actually love others more than I love myself and my own comforts and desires in this world. This is an incredibly powerful thing. You know, one of the things that, uh, 
about being a pastor is that I get to spend a lot of time reflecting on my own brokenness and my inabilities and my own failures. My heart is desperately evil, desperately broken, constantly running after my own desires and my own needs. The more you ponder this, the more you're honest with yourself about this, the reason we have a a section in our service for repentance and confession is because we need to be honest who we are, about who we are. And it is incredibly difficult to get over these things. And we all know this in our culture. And so where does the power come from to overcome these things? Truth is that every religion and worldview in human history is fundamentally self-referential, self-regarding. Martin Luther King said one time that uh, the brokenness of this world has made all of us, our hearts bend in upon ourselves so that we're constantly focused on our own needs. And these worldviews tell us that that you must be a good person, but then they give you rules and laws in order to make yourself garner power and control in order to control the world around you, and it never works. The reason that Christianity is so miraculous, the reason it's so radical, is because it's fundamentally other-focused. And it is the first worldview in the history of the world to actually have that impact and to bring that message. Jesus had all the glory and power and status and wealth in the world. Everything that you own, everything that's in our world, everything that's in our universe belongs to him. He's the one that created it. He's the one that sustains it. He's the one that holds it in the palm of his hand. And because of our rebellion and because of our sin against him, he had every right to justly be angry at us and to punish us for our rebellion against him and even destroy us. But instead of destroying us, the most amazing, miraculous thing that you've ever heard is that he actually didn't do that, but then he gave up everything, his glory, his power, his wealth, and his status, humbled himself, became a man, and then he gave up his very life on a cross in the most incredible act of self-renunciation and self-love and self-sacrifice that the world has ever known. The God of the universe died for you, and he did it all for your salvation so that you might be forgiven and restored and that sin and brokenness of your life might start stirring backwards, that light might come into our darkness, that life might come out of our death. When you realize this, it will transform your heart and change you from being a fundamentally inward-focused person to being a fundamentally other-regarding person. You will no longer live for yourself, but you will live for God and your neighbor because of our love for him and what he has done for us. This is life transforming. It's world shaping good news. And make no mistake, it is the true miracle of our passage. The true miracle of our passage. And the result is that our hearts and minds are transformed in this passage, we see this. Massive number of people come to know the Lord and the entire world was flipped on top of its head as this message, this good news of reconciliation, this good news of other-focused love and care began to spread out from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And the reason that we are all in this room today is because of that. The wave that went out from this passage from Jesus and transformed everything about us. And this miracle is that Jesus is says here in this passage is that he is still at work performing this in our hearts and minds even now, in our world today. 
and we can faithfully serve Christ in our world as we do this in word and deed and following him by telling people about the gospel, by serving the poor, by working for justice, human rights and mercy, the miraculous power of Jesus' sacrificial love actually goes forward with us and through us to heal souls, to bind up wounds, to bring that little glimpse of light into the midst of our dark world. It raises dead hearts back to life. That is amazing. It's beautiful. And as it does, God is at working through us to fulfill his cosmic rescue mission, to actually reverse the devastating effects of the fall and restore everything to him. Until that day when Jesus returns and the fraying fabric of our society is actually knit back together the way that it is supposed to be in the beginning. And everything and everyone in Christ is actually brought back to where it is supposed to be. We live in perfect harmony with him at that point. Perfect hope, perfect joy, perfect peace. And even death itself, we are told, will come untrue. Um, you're going to hear a lot of Lord of the Rings illustrations from me. I love that, and especially this time of year. Uh, for a while there, I actually read the book. Uh, every, I read all three of the books right up to Christmas because the Return of the King theme was too much for me to give up during this time of year. But one of the most beautiful passages in that book is at the end of the story where uh, you know Frodo and Sam Gamgee uh, are returned. They're saved. They actually throw the ring into the into the lake of fire, and they're brought back. And they're uh, they're at the city, the White City. And uh, and Sam wakes up, and he looks up, and he sees Gandalf there, um, and he says, "Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead too. Is everything sad going to come untrue?" The beautiful message of the gospel is yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. And that's actually what we're going to be celebrating over the next several weeks. Advent starts in darkness for a reason. It is not a season of just kind of consumerism and you know, just buying a bunch of stuff. It's actually a season of reflection. It's a season of, of waiting on the coming of our Lord, a reflection on the fact of his first coming and then looking forward to his second coming. We're going to have an Advent wreath, and each week we're going to light a different candle. And as we do that, more light will come into this world. And it is a reminder of who we are and what we are called to be. It is a reminder of our renewal that we have in Jesus Christ and the restoration and the hope that we can have in him as well. As he calls us to push back the darkness. What a good news is that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for reminding us who we are, um, what we're called to be. And we, I just pray, Lord, that you would be at work bringing all of our dead hearts back to life, pointing us to you, helping us, Lord, to fall in love with you again, to see the sweetness of your gospel in a way that we've never seen before. And I pray, Father, in a weary world that needs to learn how to rejoice again, that you, O oh Lord, in this Advent season coming up, would remind us what it is to be thankful, what we have to be thankful for. That you would remind us that you are the light that is shown into the darkness, that you are the only hope that we have, and that the miracle of your incarnation is the very foundation for our salvation, our restoration, our renewal, and our hope. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a really sweet season because you are at work in our hearts 
actually drawing us back together in you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.